Have we got any lycra-wearing cyclists in the room? Trying to look for Steve, there we go. I'm so glad you visited. This is perfect timing. No. 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 There'll be no demonstrations. No. Um, I want to start with a story of uh, the perfect example of what it means to dig yourself deeper and deeper into a hole, uh, to try and get yourself into tr out of trouble only to make things worse. So 1993 was the beginning of one of the most uh, infamous, incredible and controversial sporting careers in modern history. Uh, a young cyclist by the name of Lance Armstrong, you may have heard of him. Uh, he had already spent his teenage years uh, dominating the, uh, the triathlon scene, competing against people years older than him, but still winning. And then so in the early 90s, he turned pro, moved to Europe to become, oh, to become a... I'll sort that out. Okay, I need a collar or something. No, um, uh, moved to Europe to become a professional cyclists, uh, cyclist. But his rapid rise to fame obviously led to a lot of controversy and speculation, uh, accusation, media accusations of doping, cheating, using performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, and this, is, this, of course, was an accusation that he brushed off, and, and very adamantly so. But the accusations continued as he then started working with a guy called uh, Michel Ferrari, who was a, an Italian sports doctor, uh, although he was actually banned from practicing medicine in Italy because of the, his uh, drug programs with the Italian Cycling Federation. So this kind of kicked up a whole lot more fuss and speculation around Lance Armstrong. But he, of course, denied these allegations, despite his shady company and a few uh, times where he was busted lying about the relationship with this trainer. Fast forward a few years, this is a very brief version of this story, but fast forward a few years later, he's overcome ca cancer, he's won the Tour de France uh, seven times, he's a hero of cycling, uh, you know, a testament to human resilience, you know, coming back um, you know, from cancer to become one of the greatest athletes in the world. So how on earth could he do it? Well, in 2004, his former teammates released a book exposing him, saying that how did he do it? The answer was drugs. So how does he respond now that he's been busted? It's, it's all out in the open now. What can he do now? Surely he's got to admit his guilt, but no, he sues them for libel. He destroys their reputation. He publicly calls them out as liars. He gets their sponsor sponsorship deals removed just to crush them financially, to send a warning to anyone else who would dare challenge him. But the next year, the jig is up. Finally, after years and years, hundreds of tests, he gets a, a positive test for EPOs. So now he's busted. The, the jig is up. He's, a positive test means it's all over. But no, he refers to the test as a witch hunt. They're unscientific. They weren't conducted properly. It didn't count as evidence of everything. You've all got it wrong. The tests are wrong. So this cycle of, of accusations and denial continued. Uh, except the problem is his next team was actually sponsored by the US government, the, the US Postal Service team. So when there was accusations of cheating, it meant that the US federal government had to investigate as to whether he was cheating, which then there's uh, a few larger penalties if you're caught lying to the US federal government during their investigation. So to cut a very long story short, it all caught up with him. The jig was up. He was finally uh, admitted that he had actually been doping this entire time. But instead of being branded uh, a cheat, someone who, you know, who was doping, his reputation was tarnished as someone who was not only a, a drug cheat but a, a liar, 
uh, you know, someone who would uh, destroy the reputation of, of anyone who stood in his way, that he was just basically, <laughs> basically a sociopath. So he had started off as he could have just admitted that he was wrong in his first year of cycling, come clean, and he might have got a 12-month ban and it would have all been normal, but he dug himself further and further and further into a hole. Now maybe we haven't quite gone that far, things spiralling out of control a little bit there. But have you ever tried to dig yourself out of your own hole? You know, fix the problems that you've created. Rather than look for help outside of ourselves, maybe, maybe you lie or try and cover it up or brush it to the side to ignore it, and then it comes back to bite you. And then instead of responding properly, we dig even further and, and we create an, a bigger and bigger and bigger mess. So, so the psalm that we're going to go through today is the consequence of, of that. In today's psalm, we see the lament of someone who has been confronted with the reality of their sin that has finally caught up with them. And the weight of their guilt crushes them. But it actually, we see the correct response, that it pushes them closer to God. So, so plenty of the psalms that we could go through in this series, we don't actually know the context, you know, the... the um, underlying story of what was happening. We can still learn from them, we can sing them, we can grow from them, we can still know truth about God and, and, and uh, what he's done in the life of the psalmist, even if we don't know the full context. But, but in this case, we're going to go through Psalm 51, and we do know the exact context. And so that's in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, we, we won't go through the two whole chapters, but to, to give a, a quick summary, it is... I believe one of the saddest stories that we see in Scripture. Um, we, we see plenty of examples of evil people doing evil things, um, but, it, but in this case, in 2 Samuel 11, we see King David, you know, someone who was appointed king by God himself, someone who was described as a man after God's own heart. You know, he was blessed with prosperity, blessed with, with um, you know, God's, God's faithfulness over Israel, protection, you know, he's, he's worshipping and praising God, writing, writing psalms, offering sacrifices at the tabernacle. Everything's going so well. And then all of a sudden he sins. You know, Israel is out to battle, but he stays back home in Jerusalem and happens to spot Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop and he commits adultery and gets her pregnant. So there's the chance to come clean, confess. But no, he, he tries to cover it up. He gets Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to, to come back home from battle, uh, to go and see his wife so that the pregnancy is covered up, so that Uriah thinks that it's him. But that doesn't work. So he steps it up another notch to cover it up. He sends Uriah back to battle, but tells his military leaders to send Uriah to the front lines and then retreat so that Uriah is left on his own in battle. That's also more commonly known as murder. So, so even, even after all of this, there's actually still no repentance. It's only in the next chapter that we see that the prophet Nathan come and confront David about it. Uh, you might remember he, he tells this parable of the, the, the man who, who is really wealthy and has herds and flocks of, of sheep, and there's one poor man who just has one little ewe lamb. And Nathan says that this rich man came, and rather than kill his own lamb, he went and took from the man who only had one lamb. And, when we're reading through something like that, the parallel is really obvious. We know what Nathan is getting at here. It's like every single person knows 
what this this parable is pointing to except David. He, re, he responds with outrage of, you know, this, this, surely this rich man should be killed. How could he do something so horrible? And, and Nathan says, you are the man. You are that man. But then finally he responds correctly. He, he's broken down. He realises his sin. He, he confesses, I've sinned against the Lord. And it's here that he actually pens Psalm 51. So, so that is the, the context of, of the psalm that we're going to go through today. So yeah, if you could turn in your Bibles to, to Psalm 51. Uh, I wanted to go through this one because it, it is uh, one of my favourite psalms. And I've often had a few odd looks when I've said that it's my, my favourite psalm or that it's very relatable because... I'm hoping no one here has you know, committed murder in order to cover up their adultery. But, but it is relatable because this thought process of, of repentance and prayer, it, it should be a continual part of the Christian life for every single one of us. We should read these words and it should be awfully familiar to us of, as to what we go through when, when we turn back to God and, and confess our sins to Him. Because repentance is not just turning away from sin. Plenty of people can do that quite easily. It's, it's not just turning away from sin, but it's turning to God. So let's start reading through Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So that's what I was alluding to before, that, that repentance is not just turning from sin, but it's turning towards God. But So do we do that? What, what's your first reaction when you start getting convicted of your sins? You know, or, or even worse, if, what if some, someone else points out your sins? Is, is your first reaction to turn to God with sorrow or is it to get defensive? And, and maybe that's sometimes a reasonable reaction. We don't have the prophet Nathan with... 100% accuracy coming along to, to confront us with our sins. But, but when there is genuine conviction, do we turn immediately to God? Or maybe do we grovel in self-pity for, for a little while, you know, just until we feel a little bit better about our sins? You know, or maybe, yeah, that we don't feel so bad about it anymore. Or maybe you're the type to try and fix things yourself. You know, yes, I've stuffed up, but I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll, I'll, I'll sort it out. I'll, I'll turn to God in prayer later, but just let, let me fix these few things first. You know, or, or maybe that you try and make up for it eventually. That you know, Yes, you've had a, a bad day, but if I just have enough good days in a row, I won't worry about that bad day. That was, that was ages ago. But, but we don't need time, and we don't need to try and even the ledger because we need forgiveness and we need cleansing. And, and that's why we turn to God, because it's in His nature. We, we ask for forgiveness from Him because it, He is forgiving in His very character. And, and so that's why David says, according to your steadfast love, you know, according to your abundant mercy, you know, according to our knowledge that God sent His Son into the world, according to our, our knowledge that, that God has proved His love to us, by sending his son to die for our sins, you know, to provide a way of forgiveness. So it's on this basis where we're confident of his character that he's willing to forgive us and cleanse us. 
you know, First John 1 John 1.9 says that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, simply when we confess our sins to Him. So when we ask God to be merciful to us, we're actually asking God to be Himself, to act in accordance with His own character and nature. We're not asking for something out of the blue. It feels sometimes like we're asking, we're asking too much of God. But when we say, God, be merciful, well, that's a perfectly reasonable request because He is a merciful God. So when we, when we don't repent, when we try and hide from God, when we try and fix things ourselves, you know, we're not just failing to recognise the reality of our own sin, we're actually failing to recognise the reality of God's character and God's goodness. See, God is eager to forgive us. I think we, we often convince ourselves that, that God is willing to forgive us because we've managed to discover the, le- the legal loophole in Jesus. You know, it, it, yes, you know, he, he, he will forgive you because, well, He has to because Jesus died for those sins, so you know, he's, he's still not happy about it. Or, or you know, yes, he's, he's willing to forgive you, but there's still quite a bit of disappointment that He has for you. But that's not what we see in Scripture at all. It's a God who's willing and eager and ready to forgive because it's in His very nature. You know, He takes delight in saving sinners. As His children, He wants us to come to Him humbly with repentant hearts. So when you get convicted of sin, turn straight to Him. You don't need to wait it out, wait until you feel a bit better, wait until God is willing to forgive you. Go straight to Him. And when we go straight to Him, we do it honestly. So let's continue on in in verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So, so true repentance isn't just turning to God, but it's being honest. I, I know that, that I do this if, I, if I'm describing my own sins to someone else, the, the, the desperate need to sugarcoat it, the, you know, just, just describe it. Yes, you know, maybe I've sinned, but I'll describe it in a way that doesn't make me sound so bad. You know, we, we have to show ourselves in the best possible light. You know, yeah, maybe I gossiped about this person, but I was really only, you know, sharing that information so I could get them to pray for them. You know, yeah, you know, maybe I sinned, but it wasn't a really bad one, or it wasn't like what this other person did. You know, I sinned in the way that I spoke to someone, but, but they started it. They said this to me first. You know, you have to include that detail, you know, otherwise they wouldn't get the full context of your sin, which is really about the other guy, you know. Or that, you know, you confess your sins, but you say, you know, but that's not me, though. You know, I'm not normally like that. It was, it was out of character. And it's, it's actually easy to do the same when we come to God, that, that we, maybe not as blatantly as that, but we do still try and hide and cover up our sin from God, just like Adam and Eve covering up in Eden. But it's pretty pointless. Like, it, it's, it's not really going to work, you know, and, and we all know that. We know that we're not actually going to fool God you know, try and cover things up and sugarcoat things. So we need to have the same attitude of David. 
as David, where he just says, I, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You say, I, I know, God, I, I, I've sinned. I, I can see it as clear as day and surely you can too. So we're, we're confessing our sins to a God who already knows our, our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. So I don't know why we'd convince ourselves that it's in any way productive to, to sugarcoat things. But, but God just wants us to openly acknowledge our sins, confess them to Him, because how can we be truly repentant unless we actually acknowledge where we've gone astray? In verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, against you and you only. That's, that's an, an odd verse. You know, does this really mean that we don't sin against others? Well, I, I think uh, you, Uriah would, would beg to differ. You know, he, he got killed as, as David went and committed adultery with uh, his wife. But so he's not saying that. He's not saying that you you you're not you know you can't sin against other other people. He's he's saying that ultimately all sins, e- even when committed against other people, they're a violation of God's law. You know, sin, sin isn't something that's just merely socially unacceptable and that things are wrong only if you're hurting someone else. It's God is the one who set the standard. It's God's laws that we break. And it means that he's the one that we're actually ultimately accountable to. Even when we hurt other people, we're accountable to God because it's his law. But that also means that he's the one who can offer ultimate forgiveness. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So we not only acknowledge that it's a God that we've sinned against, but that he would actually be right to judge us. You know, the reason why we might have a problem with judgment is because we don't realise just how bad our sin is. You know, the, the, the crime, the, the, the punishment reveals to us just how severe the crime is. And, and I know that that's something uh, that's difficult for those of us who have been brought up in Christian families. We, uh, we've probably known... The, the solution of the gospel just as long as we've known about the problem of a sin. And so it's really easy when we think about these things to um, not think about judgment all that much because, well, we know that Jesus has saved us. He's, he's forgiven us. And, and that's true. And, and it's really important for us as believers that we don't fear judgment. We, we know that we have forgiveness in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I, I'm not suggesting that we fear judgment. But, but it is worth considering... You know, where would your life be without Jesus? What, what state would you be in without it? For, for those of us who have known him, known him from a really young age, it's, it's worth considering, where would I be without Jesus? What, what would my life look like? And more importantly, what would my eternal state look like if it weren't for him? You know, to, to quote the hymn, you know, what, what could wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's, that's the only place we find our hope. And, and that's because our sin problem is something that's within us. He uh, points this out in, in verse 5. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David recognises this is an in- internal problem. We don't just have a, a tendency to, to sugarcoat our sins, but we, uh, we, we also tend to see it as an external problem, so we can push the blame so- somewhere else. You know, blame your, your circumstances or, or upbringing or the people around you. 
you know, yes, I, you know, I sin, but this other person started it, or you know, I I, I sin, but 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 I got influenced by the wrong people. You know, I was just hanging out with the wrong crowd. They influenced me. It, it was completely out of character. You know, I, I'm not like that at all. I'm still a really good person who just did the wrong thing. You know, they, they they always do that every time there's a, a tribunal case uh, in in the AFL. It's, it's uh, they always bring out the character reference. You know, someone came along and punched someone in the jaw, but then they'll have a, a, a friend to come along and say it was completely out of character. They don't normally punch people in the head. They, they did this time, but they don't know they're a really good person normally. And then all of a sudden that's taken into account and then they get less weeks or a smaller fine. But, but if it was out of character, then why did they do it? And, and we do the same thing with our, our sin, to, to justify ourselves. We go, well, I'm not normally like that. I don't normally think like that. And some of the excuses may be partially true. We, we do sometimes sin as, as a response to how we're treated and we do get influenced by other people around us. But then the question is, why do we respond the way that we do and why do we get influenced by the wrong people? And, and that's because sin didn't come into our lives from an external source. It, it's an internal problem. David says that he was brought forth in sin, conceived in, in iniquity. It's our very nature that, that needs transformation and needs changing. And so God wants us to be honest about this as well. Verse 6 says that you know, God delights in truth in the inward being. We need to properly examine our own hearts when we come to Him. And, that, and that's not to make us despair. This is actually to push us towards God. Just be open and honest with Him. And the whole purpose of that is so that we can be changed and cleansed. And that's exactly where he goes in, in the next verse, in verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold, with me, uh, uphold me with a willing spirit. So the purpose of this is, is restoration. That's why we come to God with confession. Now, it's not just because we got caught or it's not just because we feel bad. It's because... We desire change and restoration. And, you know, David asked for, for cleansing, for, for washing, for blotting out of his sins. The, the same thing that he said in verse 1 and 2. So the first obvious question from that little section that I read out there, purge me with hyssop. What on earth does it mean to be purged with hyssop? So, so it's actually referring to hyssop branches that, that were used, uh, they, were, they were tied together in the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant. The branches were tied together uh, for sprinkling with water and sprinkling with blood uh, as, a, as a ritual uh, for cleansing in the tabernacle. So th there's lots of language being used here that, that kind of relates to the Old Testament sacrificial system, purging, washing, blotting out sins, all of that is used over and over again in, in Leviticus. That basically David is recognising that he can't clean himself. He can't come before God in his own strength and his own means. You know, that, that's the whole reason why Israel was given that whole sacrificial system, was to remind them, you can't come into God's presence just by yourself. You need cleansing. 
but with, with, without going into a, a whole sermon series on, on Hebrews you know, 9 and 10, you know, we, we should recognise, I, I think even David recognised as he was writing this, that this, this sacrificial system of the Old Testament wasn't enough to wash him from his sins. You know, he already had the sacrificial system and yet he still cried out for cleansing and washing and for God to blot out his sins. He knew that it was incomplete and, and I think we, we have the advantages as New Covenant believers to, to see how it's all fulfilled. We, we look at this and, and know how God has fulfilled and solved this problem. Our desperate need for cleansing is fulfilled in Jesus you know, the, the, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, it's His blood as He died on the cross for our sins. That's the thing that cleanses us, that's the thing that, that washes us, that's what blots out our sins. Takes away our stains, makes us whiter than snow. And it's only through that, that sacrifice, that that way that removes our sins, it's only then that He can pour out His Spirit to dwell within us, to transform our lives, to make us new. And that's exactly what David prays. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So notice that there's a, there's a genuine desire for change. So, so that's a challenging question. And what, what is your genuine... Do you have a genuine desire for change? Now, are there the sins that you're, you're struggling with? And, and by struggling with, I, I mean that in, in the positive sense. It is a good and positive thing if there are things that you are struggling against. It's a, it's a good sign that you're a genuine believer. Because if you say, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm fine. I've got it all together. You know, nothing I really need to worry about. That's, that's a bad sign. Yeah, but do you pray asking to be changed so that you no longer continue struggling with the same sins? You know, true, true repentance isn't saying sorry that you finally got caught, that it all caught up with you. Or maybe because you're upset about the consequences. You know, that's pretty much the, the example of the, the Lance Armstrong story I gave at the start. It's the perfect example of an apology on the basis of finally getting caught and all the consequences catching up with him. But no, here we're repenting because we desperately want to change. We don't want to sin anymore because we love God. A quick side note with uh, verse 11. It says, cast, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So just a, a quick clarification on that point. Uh, th this was to do with God's presence and favour over David as a king. It wasn't to do with removing the indwelling Holy Spirit of a believer that, you know, that New Covenant believers get to experience. It was like several years ago, I was at a, um, a youth group that basically had altar calls every Friday night, another chance to rededicate your life if you've stuffed up badly, if you've sinned throughout the week, if you haven't been faithful enough to Jesus, we'll come up and re rededicate your life all over again. And, and they actually did use the, the, the language of, you know, restoring the broken fellowship, that's not what's happening. You know, yes, God is restoring us and recreating us. You know, yes, we, we do turn away from God when we sin, but God doesn't turn away from us. The fellowship isn't broken. 
you know, in, in the New Testament, fellowship with God is synonymous with salvation. So it's really dangerous to say you need to keep coming every week to restore the fellowship. You know, every time you come to God and, and pray a psalm like this, you, you're not praying to be saved again. You, know, you don't get saved every time that you come to God in repentance. We, we come to God confessing our sins because we're confident that Jesus has already secured our salvation for us. And next and finally we see the response. So in verse 13 it says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So that's why I love this psalm. It's, yes, it, it, it is about David's repentance, but it's also about worship. You know, God saved us when we didn't deserve it. He cleansed us, He washed us, He forgave us. And, and there are two responses that, that David gives, and it's, and it's worship. It's telling God how amazing He is, and it's telling others how amazing God is. And that means that we don't need to put on a front when we come to church and pretend that we've got it all together. We're just a, a group of people that recognise we need saving and that we've all found a great saviour in Jesus. And we don't need to put on a show for unbelievers as well to suggest that we've got it all together and that Christianity must be true because we've, we've managed to live perfectly. You know, I've, I've talked to Christians who were really worried about telling other people at their workplace that they were Christians. Not, not because they're embarrassed or ashamed about the gospel, but because they know that their hypocrisy will be on display. They don't want people to know that they're a Christian because their non-Christian work friends will, will hold them to this standard. And, but the real, that's okay though. That, that's okay if they see that. If they see that we're a Christian and we don't live perfectly, the whole point is that we are to point to the one who can save us. It was, was D.T. Niles said that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We don't need to put on a show. We just need to proclaim that we have a great saviour. And then he ends the psalm saying, do good in Zion, do good to Zion in, all, in, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So earlier on he said that I won't delight in your sacrifices and, and now he says that he will delight in sacrifices. So how do we explain this supposed contradiction here? Well, the, the context makes it clear what he's talking about. He doesn't want David to perform all the rituals you know, obey his commands purely out of obligation, thinking that that will make him right with God. It says, firstly, God wants a broken and contrite heart. You know, and then David can come and offer the burnt offerings and go through all the rituals. And we can do the same things, uh, that, same with the things that God has given us and, and the, the, the commands that God has given us as believers. You know, we, we can serve God by coming to church, evangelising, uh, sacrificing our time and our effort and our money towards uh, ministry. 
you know, fellowship with other believers. They're, they're all good things, but they won't save us. They don't make us right with God. We first have to come to God humbly. He cleanses us. He changes us. And then we can do all those things and continue to serve Him in those ways. So the distinction there is, is everything. Why, why do we do these things? Why do we come to church? Why do we serve God? Why do we want to serve other people? Is it because we want to make ourselves right with God, even out the ledger? Or do we do it because we've been, had a broken and contrite heart, we recognise we need saving, God has been so good to save us, and then we just can't help but want to serve Him? So this psalm paints such a, a beautiful picture of repentance because it paints a beautiful picture of a merciful God. So the true repentance described here means that we don't just turn from our sins, but we turn to Jesus. We're called to, to trust in Him, that He will be merciful because we know that He's shown us mercy at the cross. True repentance means that we're honest with God, we don't sugarcoat it. True repentance means that we seek genuine change, you know, not just relief from the consequences of our actions. And, and true repentance involves responding to God's goodness with thanksgiving and worship and proclaiming His goodness to, to ourselves and to each other and to the whole world. And so we, we have an opportunity to, to do that now as we uh, partake in communion as, as a closing to our sermon. I want us to, to remind ourselves of the goodness of God, that He's provided a way to be merciful to us, that He's cleansed us from our sins by dying for our sins. And that we have, through His resurrection, we have confidence that He's coming back to save us once and for all. So maybe we can just uh, take a little bit of time to reflect on that, e examine yourself and even repent before God. You know, confess your sins to Him, just be open and honest with God and He will be merciful when you come to Him through Jesus Christ. Reflect on God's goodness towards you as, as we partake in communion. You know, pray and repent, maybe even read through this psalm, confess your sins to others. You know, if you want um, prayer, feel free to come up and see myself or, or Mark or Phil. Now, let, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that it is in your nature to show mercy. Thank you that you've revealed your good, goodness to us in Jesus Christ and that through him we have forgiveness of sins, we have cleansing and washing and the blotting out of our sins. And Lord, as we come to your table, we thank you that your body was broken for us and that your blood was shed to establish a, a covenant with us that we can be confident that you will continue to forgive us in the midst of our sin and, and struggles, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would open our eyes to, to better understand your, your greatness and your merciful nature, Lord. Help us to always run directly to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.